What's up, people? It's Thursday, February 24th, and unless I missed elementary school, I think this is the last Thursday in the month of February because I don't think there are 31 days in February. That's just me. You're watching Market Call. I'm Guy Adami. I'll be joined in a second by my dear friend Dan Nathan. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow, SoFi. Get your money right all in one app. And, of course, Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. A lot happening in the markets and across the globe right now, as you all know. So we're going to try to make some sense of this all. In a few minutes, we're going to have EY from SoFi. If you don't know, that's Liz Young from SoFi. And later, Tina Fordman of Von Hurst will give her geopolitical outlook extraordinarily important she is the axe in all things geopolitical dan how are you yeah well we have two friends to help us make sense of this like you said you know liz has been calling for a little caution in the lead up to this sell-off so that's been really helpful and she's going to kind of lay out some of the reasons and tina fordham she's been with us now a couple times on market call guy over the last couple of months and she's been laying out the sort of geopolitical headwinds and all of it has come kind of smashing together right now and i know that you kind of have been in the camp for months and months and months and you just thought that you know sooner or later we're going to have the sort of up and you know we, we often hear this about you know the first year of presidential cycles um, that you know they get tested here and it took a little bit longer than we might have expected but I, I think you were identifying some of the the kind of the issues that were bubbling under the surface a little bit you know I think you and I would probably agree that the way the market traded last year and given the accommodative uh, nature of the Fed and the trillions of dollars thrown at the pandemic that you know we were likely to see a correction I mean you and I kept on scratching our head last year I'm like wait this is going to be the first year in I don't know 10 or one of five in 50 where the S&P 500 had not had a 10% peak to trough decline so there was a lot of head scratching action all of last year listen in the last couple of months of 2021 you said it dozens of times on market calls fast money whatever it is on the tape podcast that the higher things went into year end the worse it could be in the first quarter of 2022 and that's playing out right before our eyes, Dan. Um, and at this, so I say kudos to you. What's interesting, though, these counter-trend rallies can be extraordinarily powerful. Yeah. This is a very short-term chart, but this illustrates exactly that. You know, Liz, as you mentioned, EY from SoFi, I would say at least a month ago in one of her notes, talked about a paradigm shift and how it's instead of a buy the sell-off market, it is now sell the rally market. And I think this speaks to exactly that. Yeah, so this is the NASDAQ. This is just a 5J chart. And you see that upper left to the bottom right. We had this huge gap this morning. The news overnight was not great. I mean, I think that a lot of people were hoping for some form of de-escalation. Tino will speak to the probabilities of that um, over the next few days or weeks or so. But you had that huge down move. Um, a lot of people were like, well, listen, I've been selling for days, if not weeks already. And sometimes when you get that gap, you know, the last thing you, you see is, People are like, all right, I'm going to cover my shorts. And then you get these like good old fashioned short squeezes. I think it's interesting that the NASDAQ filled in that entire gap. I think it's had about a three and a half percent move off the lows. Look at the S&P 500, though. This is kind of a different story here. And part of this, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, is the rotations that you're seeing in the S&P 500. The big names in the NASDAQ obviously make up a huge percent of the NASDAQ 100.
700, but the smaller names, the ones that are down 50, 60% or so, they're kind of washed out. There's probably no one left to sell unless we get into an all out panic mode. But let's look at the S&P 500 since the start of 2021 guy. And this is a chart I think that you've been kind of playing for a retest of that Jan 24 low. There's some levels if you go back to last um, spring or so that made a lot of sense on the charts. When we broke that 200 day moving average last week, it was really kind of the next the, the next spot on the chart were those prior lows. Well, here we are. We're kind of, you know, kind of either side of that really important technical level. What's your take here? Because that past support is now resistance. Listen, we had said literally for months, if not longer, quite frankly, that the fact that we hadn't tested the 200 day moving average for literally a year and a half was problematic. And we finally did had some real noise around it, as this chart illustrates. And now you have this breakdown. The question is, how many standard deviations away from the 200-day moving average can we get? You drew that horizontal red line. That's the right line. We've been talking about that level as support for a while. We've broken it. I think the logical place is 4,000, not because 4,000 means anything, but 4,000 was a prior high if you go way back into March of last year. With that said, my ultimate test is 3,750, and for whatever reason, a lot of people are pulling that number out now. I will say that Carter Worth was on market call yesterday. He pointed out the head and shoulders uh, formulating now in the S&P. He also formulated, said the measured move off that head and shoulders brings you down to about 3,700 or so. So for me, that's the crosshairs. That's what the market's got its eye on. And we'll see if we get there. I think we will, by the way. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You and I do a lot of audio. We obviously do a lot of video here, too. And one of the reasons why we focus on these charts is, like, they kind of work. I mean, if you think about really where a lot of the levels are that a lot of market participants are using, whether it be to put stops in, whether it be in the futures market, whether it helps inform um, some of their entry and exit points, and clearly strikes in the options market. And it's just amazing sometimes how precise um, that is. Let's look at the NASDAQ 100, though, Guy, because this one is also a bit precise. Look at where that bounced from this morning. It bounced from the lows, basically that double bottom low that we saw last May or so. And at its lows, it was down about 22 and a half percent or so. So it's had that nice rally. We showed that intraday move. One of the things that you and I have brought up on numerous occasions over the last few weeks is that it really struck us that the all-time high came in late November. And that was really the period in which, you know, there was some of the geopolitical stuff starting to bubble up a little bit. Not that it had anything to do with the NASDAQ stocks in particular, but rates were moving higher. That had a lot to do with the Fed's uh, new intent to fight inflation and higher rates maybe caused a, a little deflation in market or at least stock market valuations here. Look with that stop guy. You see that 200 day all the way up there at 15,000. We bounced off of basically 13,000. You got a little range here, buddy. This is going to sound wonky. I don't mean it to be, but you pointed out this topped out effectively the same time the Fed did a 180, right around Thanksgiving or thereabouts, quite frankly. And that's for good reason. But now you're going to see something really weird happen. Now the S&P is starting to catch up with the NDX. And you have to wonder... If rates start to go lower in this sort of flight to quality thing, will we see a short-term bottom in names like in an NDX that are sensitive to rate increases? It's so many crazy things going on, but I can make an argument that the NDX now might outperform 
the S&P. And I know that sounds somewhat crazy, but I'll stick to that, Dan, at least for the near term. And, you know, it doesn't sound crazy to me. I was on Closing Bell on Friday afternoon. I was asked the question, you know, how would you leg into, we are talking about Kathy Wood and her innovation ARC ETF or whatever the heck it's called. And, you know, for me, I actually think you buy the QQQ down 20% or you start legging into it. And I'll tell you why. Because once you get the major names and we know what they are, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and Amazon, once they capitulate, then there's dozens of stocks that are down 50, 60% over the last year or so, some in just the last three months. And you'll have the benefit of those because I believe the prior leaders will clearly be the other leaders, you know, but it's going to take a time. It's going to take a bit of time. This one is a little different, but let's talk about one of those leaders real quickly, Guy. We talked about Apple yesterday with Carter and really, I mean, he agreed with us that we think this is always going to be the last battle fought in the market. You know, it's um, high single digits percentage in the NASDAQ. We know it's the largest weight in the S&P 500. It was showing very good relative strength. I think yesterday it was down less than about 10% from its all-time highs. And we really thought that this one will see some weakness and it might accelerate to the downside because it's that last one where people are really crowded in. It's held in every ETF. It's the largest market cap company in the world. Look where that thing stopped, guy. Almost like, like to a T, that 200-day moving average. And I will just say, tune into Market Call because we do it every Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Yesterday, I had an options trade that would really encapsulate a move back to those levels, back to the 200-day moving average in Apple if it was a hedge or an outright bearish bet. And I still like that trade here. To the penny, as they say. I think the low today was 152. We did outline that. That trade worked out a lot faster than I thought. You mentioned Monday through Thursday. We do take Fridays off, sort of like Congress. But we got to bring somebody in here, Dan. I mean, we've been waxing poetic for a while. Bring her in, man, will you, please? Well, you said it, guy. EY from SoFi. I just call her Liz Young here. Liz, how are you? You're back from vacation. I am back from vacation. I'm refreshed, and I came back to a hot mess in the markets. It is a hot mess. Well, you heard what we had to say here. One of the things that I think is really interesting, um, just on the price action over the last day or so, and Guy was saying there's some weird stuff going on. Look at the way some of these software names, some of these these names that have just been really beaten up, have rallied today. And then if we're going to look at the financials, get some of these bank stocks are absolutely getting murdered. Let's look at this IGV chart. This is the um, ETF that tracks in Microsoft, Salesforce, Adobe. These are all big components at its lows this morning was down about 33% from its all-time highs just made in November. Look at that rip, roar, and rally it's had off of the lows. When you see that sort of price action in a group that was clearly one of the big winners last year or for the last couple years, and then really has just gotten creamed, in markets like this, it's kind of interesting to see these sorts of squeezy moves. Yeah, and I think this, this talks to basically a factor trade. So when you think about the factors that drive different sectors, right? Obviously, we've got another layer of risk that's been laid on the market in the last couple of weeks. That layer of risk, the geopolitical risk, has introduced a growth scare that now could be global. So we were worried about growth slowing down before. Now this is a growth scare. So then you're going to see that growth factor and things that are driven by that growth factor come back off. So things like the Dow, things like industrials, consumer discretionary, financials as a cyclical component. So that's why you're seeing some relaxation there. And then that pickup in tech. Now think about just the swings that we've seen in tech already this year, right? We've seen a pretty violent sell-off across the board in tech and a lot of flows out of things like the QQQ, 
when you have that kind of flip-flop in what's driving the market, if you've got a growth scare, then people are going to say, all right, what do I want to do with my money though? Am I going to put it back into tech? Now is it undervalued enough where I can get comfortable maybe towing back in? And I think we're seeing some of that today. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, look at the financials, look at the XLF, uh, the ETF that tracks most of the major banks. We know that Berkshire is the largest holding there. So that's not exactly a bank. And that does some things to that ETF that can be a little weird at times. But look at this one. It was showing really good relative strength. Whatever you think, and we're going to get to what you think of the bond market, but whatever you thought about the 210 spread and net interest margins and, you know, bank investors really kind of liked it until today, right? You see this huge gap. You see that uptrend um, from the past year. We just broke the 200-day moving average. Now, it's done that a couple times over the last couple of months, but it's found some support. Is this time different? It's below that uptrend, but you know some of the components, Citibank is down 7%, JP Morgan down 5%. These stocks, you know, a couple of them were not trading particularly well despite the XLF hanging in there. I'm just curious what you make of like these sorts of rotations. Well, look, earnings season for financials wasn't necessarily bad, but the guidance was that we weren't expecting as much net interest margin improvement through 2022 as maybe we'd hoped for towards the end of 2021. And then you see this dramatic flattening of the yield curve. I think that drove things even further down. So obviously out of favor right now, I still like financials as a space to be for the year. I don't think that they're going to do very well, obviously in a flattening yield curve environment. And I think we're going to see some issues as growth continues to be a problem. But I do think that financials in the middle of the year, second half of the year should do okay. And if we have a consumer that holds up and we have an economy that holds up and gets through this growth scare, that's still a place that I would be. Yeah, that's a big if at this point, if you think about it, if some of the palpitations that we had in 2021 uh, as as it relates to growth, just from the uh, Delta and the Omicron, and now we have these geopolitical things further exasperating some of those inflation fears, further uh, emboldening, I guess, the Fed to continue down this path to fight inflation because we're going to continue to see supply chain disruptions, um, I suspect. Let's talk about your note. You had a note out on the SoFi blog this morning. It's 99 problems, and Guy and Dan are not two of them, which is is good because usually we are or we tend to be talk to us a little bit about this mess that you've come back to um, after your vacation yeah i don't think i said that that you and dan were not or you okay. and guy were not the problem but i think it ends with that boredom isn't the problem we're certainly not bored but i'll leave you guys out of it and let me say this so the note i'll cover but when i when we came into the year my outlook was titled running into the wind and I think it's important to point out that it is uncomfortable for me to be cautious. It is uncomfortable for me to give a bearish message. And I don't mean bearish as in I'm calling for a bear market, but a bearish message in the sense of I'm cautious in markets. I saw a little bit of trepidation coming. I was worried that things would not continue as they did through the end of 2021. Dan, I know you're much more comfortable being bearish on the markets. (laughs) I'm the opposite. So this has been an uncomfortable time for me. Unfortunately, it was right. And I don't think anybody wanted it really to play out that way. This note was kind of to review, okay, look, we came into this year knowing that we had this issue. We had this first problem of inflation that didn't go away, hasn't cooled off, only has heated up. And we had this issue of the Fed having to enter a tightening cycle. Now, that alone is not necessarily a problem. At some point in an economic cycle, they do have to tighten. They should take their foot off the gas. That is what's supposed to happen. 
The issue right now is that obviously we've got inflationary pressures and we've just layered on top of that this huge geopolitical, I guess we'll call it a shock at this point, although I don't think it was completely out of left field. So what we're looking at is finally a real correction. And finally, PEs actually that have dropped back below their five-year average. And that hasn't happened in a long time. So the funny part about this is we got so worried last year that we hadn't had a correction of 10%. We had PEs that were so inflated. And now here we are, we've had the correction, we've got PEs back to a more manageable level, and we're still freaking out. And I think this is a time when in the short term, you have to manage yourself psychologically. But in the long term, this is something that I'm almost relieved it finally happened. So I'm okay with having these problems in the short term. Obviously, we still have a lot to be seen on what happens in Russia and Ukraine. No question about it. And one thing we've talked about, I mean, literally, I want to say for the last nine months is what's been going on in energy. Now, everybody seems to be talking about it. So let's check out crude oil here because it's important to look at. I mean, the move higher has been uh, pretty ridiculous. Maybe it culminated over the last 24 hours. I don't know. Um, but what do you make of oil here, Liz? Well, if you guys remember, the note that I wrote right before vacation was about oil. And it was about the concerns that I had. Uh, I don't know if I said it on the show, but we were just one shock away from triple digits. And here we are, we got the shock and we got triple digits. So the reason that oil is something that we have to watch is because as we've talked about, a spike in oil prices typically precedes a recession. I still don't think we're at the level where this is an issue and it's going to cause a recession, but this is something that is a barometer for what could happen to inflation for the next couple months. And here's the important part. So we wanna say that some of the geopolitical risk that's been introduced into the market recently will make the Fed more dovish. That's possible. I would say that's probably, that's probable, but this spike in oil prices, the fact that other commodity prices have continued to rise, tells me that the inflation read that they're gonna get on March 10th before they have that meeting is still gonna be pretty hot. So it's not gonna be able to slow them down. They're going to have to come at it with a hammer. They're going to have to follow through with hikes. And then we've got these competing forces. So stagflation starts to be a real concern in the next few months. And oil prices are something that I think they probably come off these hot levels, but they're not helping us in the near term. Yeah, they're definitely not. I mean, we've been kind of focused on this chart. And if you look at some, it looks like a wave, right, over the last year or so. And you've seen these kind of spikes up. And I think it's interesting, though, in 2021, I think some of the spikes were in anticipation of increased demand because we were going to be past the pandemic. Well, that never really happened, right? And then we had those pretty sharp sell-offs with the largest being the one into December after the Biden administration tapped the, the strate uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Here's the thing, man. You know, you have that sort of spike that we saw, um, you know, today. And, you know, I just don't see it really following through or so. You see that 200-day moving average all the way down there at 75. But look at this 20-year chart of crude. And this is on a log basis. And you see that downtrend and guy and I were focused on that last year and there was a couple instances where it really felt like it might kind of break and really kind of lean against that technical resistance but now it is a firm breakout and I you know you go all the way back to 2008 you know during the throes of the of the financial crisis right before that it was Chinese stimulus right that was drawing um, you know kind of increased demand for crude in a way I mean there could be a straight shot to 150 and if that happens 
look out. But Liz, let's talk yeah. about yields here because you have something to say about the 210 spread. Guy has been calling for 30 basis point for some time and you're almost there, Guy. I think we almost got there. What's your take on the 210 spread here and how should equity investors be thinking about this? Yeah, Guy, I applaud you on this call. And, and whether you knew what was gonna be the impetus to get us there or not, uh, I don't think that there were a lot of people that guessed it would go back down to 30. So here's, here's what I would say about the spread. And we talk about the spread a lot in general terms. All people like us talk about the spread a lot. You can look at it as a fear gauge, uh, as a sort of recession indicator, or you can look at it as an indication that the Fed is gonna watch. Now, I've said this a few times, the Fed doesn't care about your feelings. I think the Fed doesn't care necessarily about the equity market as much right now, but it does care about the yield curve. So I think that this flattening of the curve has brought the probability of a 50 basis point hike way back down, maybe down to zero at this point. And that's something that the Fed will watch and it could change the trajectory of their moves going through spring. So if this yield curve flattens further, regardless of whether it's because the tens moved or the twos moved, if it flattens further, they're not gonna want it to be any worse than that. And they're probably gonna take their foot off the hiking pedal a little bit. They got so many problems. And you know, that 30 basis points, I thought it come in the, in the form of one and a half in the, in the two year, 1.8 in the 10 year. And we're, we're pretty close and I'll stand by that. Um, I'm so happy you're back. You got people floating around behind you. Uh, none of them did anything wrong with their hands. On the next market call, we're going to talk to Liz Young about all things Green Bay Packers and what do you do with Devontae Adams, but that's for another time. Thank you, L.Y. If you want to check her out on Twitter, and you should, because if you're not following her, you're just doing Twitter wrong. It's Liz Young Strat, at Liz Young Strat. Sign up for SoFi's daily newsletter at SoFi.com backslash daily to, Liz, to read Liz's articles every Thursday. See you later, EY. Bye, guys. Now it's time, as they say, to bring in our next guest. I mean, this is so much fun. I feel like a host, like Gene Rayburn or something. You got to check out, I mean, what's going on in Ukraine and, and Russia, obviously, that's top of mind. We've been talking about it for a while, but Dan and I are hacks. We're going to bring in somebody that actually knows what she's talking about. That's Tina Fordham. She's a partner and head of global political strategy at Von Hurst. Tina, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. But today is a tragic day. Let's be clear about that. The war uh, in Ukraine is a serious development. I, I, I could not agree with you more. And we don't make light of it in any stretch. I mean, obviously, the loss of life is going to be catastrophic. Any loss of life is. Um, and we don't want to underestimate that. But we want to try to drill down on what does it mean for the market. So my first question to you is, what did everybody miss? I mean, to me, the warning signs were there. But for investors and market participants, what did they miss? What signals were there that they chose not to acknowledge? And this is a really important question. I mean, the first, the first sort of fact is that geopolitical risk hasn't had much impact in markets, on markets, for over a decade, let's say. We've had the, the central bank put um, as a kind of a buffer. Whenever there's liquidity in the system, it doesn't matter much. So you've got a whole generation of investors who've just never experienced geopolitical risk ever mattering. So that's the first one. I think the second point is that in over 20 years of talking to investors about geopolitics, the phrase I hear most often is that people act in their rational economic self-interest. Well, Putin has not acted 
in his or Russia's rational economic self-interest, unless he thought that a uh, free Ukraine was an existential threat to the survival of Russia, which seems very unlikely. So we need to dispel that myth um, that leaders don't undertake actions uh, that could be uh, could have economic consequences. Um, the final point I'd make is that Putin has been telegraphing through his writings and his interviews what he, you know, what he what he thought for years now. Um, this is definitely not a black swan event. He's been saying that Ukraine is not a real country, that it's not a sovereign nation. He's been laying the groundwork for an invasion for a long time. To be fair um, to kind of consensus, he's also been saying he had no intention of invading Ukraine during all of these diplomatic meetings. But th there is a pattern and there is a playbook here, whether it's 2014 uh, invasion in, uh, in the annexation of Crimea or 2008 in Georgia. Putin is also trolling us uh, with the 1999 NATO bombing of, of Belgrade, which may be ancient history for a lot of people on the street, but it's not ancient history for Vladimir Putin, um, who, uh, for whom even Bolshevik history uh, feels very recent and he believes um, needs changing the decisions that were made in the Bolshevik revolution. He gave a bit of a history lesson the other night with that speech. It's interesting, it, an hour long, it doesn't seem to be scripted. And, you know, I'll look at it this way. He obviously longs for uh, not the Soviet Union, but the but the Russian Empire. And people think- Russian Empire, this, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And people think this invasion of Ukraine is for that. And maybe that's part of it. My sense, it's something far, far more nefarious. And that's Ukraine is one of the most commodity rich countries in the world. And if you control commodities, uh, Tina, you control global economies. Am I that far off? Uh, not at all. But I mean, there there is a, a kind of a almost a czarist kind of element to his longing. I mean, Ukraine is important for all kinds of reasons. It's a huge country, um, uh, strategic. It's on the way to everywhere, um, which is one reason why it's always had a, a multi-ethnic population. Um, we shouldn't believe Putin when he says it's about NATO. I don't think it's about NATO, um, but he is um, uh, his idea of needing to have a security buffer is important. Belarus, by the way, has just been absorbed now into uh, Russia's orbit. Mm -hmm. I think that Putin wants regime change in Ukraine, um, and uh, it will be interesting to see how that plays out because two things are happening, Guy, right now. Uh, one is that there are reports of 44 uh, protests in 44 Russian cities. Now, to be a protester in Russia is very brave uh, indeed, because um, that means prison. Um, and the other question mark that I have is, is whether Russian soldiers in the field, uh, in the cold, in Ukraine, are going to fulfill their responsibilities against uh, what they consider brother slobs. So has he overreached? We're going to find out. I mean, but my sense is, you know, this was well thought out and I'm not trying to give him any credit, you know, but I know this is a person obviously that makes moves five, six times ahead of ahead of his uh, rivals. I'll say this. One of the other things we've been talking about for months now, if not longer, was what could potentially happen to the next hotspot post Olympics. And that's China and Taiwan. I mean, talk to me about that. Is that on the horizon? Well, I think the first point is is that Putin would not have uh, undertaken a you know an, a major invasion by air, land, and sea of Ukraine 
without um, the Chinese at least uh, not objecting, right? So that's the first point. The Chinese have put themselves in a, in a complicated position. They've said that um, Ukraine is a sovereign nation on the one hand, that's to differentiate from Taiwan, which is not sovereign, has always been part of, of China. Um, but China doesn't really have Russia's back. Uh, if you see what I mean. The sanctions that are going to come, uh, the fact that Putin did a deal with, uh, with China on, on gas, it's important, but it doesn't make up for, for Europe. So this could be a massive miscalculation for Putin. China will, will watch and see what happens. They're also going to watch the international response. And here, what happens next with the U.S., and European Union and UK, um, I think that Russia will come out of SWIFT, uh, for example. We have been very um, reluctant to pass sanctions that would hurt our own uh, commercial interests, and that will be a signal for China. There'll be much less appetite, by the way, to sanction China for anything that, that it might do. So this is a huge moment um, for the international system, big you know, IR term, uh, but it's something that very few investors have experience with. So, Tina, what do you think the probabilities are, though, that we're going to be involved in a multi-front sanction sort of situation? And I think you bring up a great point. I mean, we already went through that trade war um, with China. There's still a lot of tariffs that are still on a lot of goods, right? And we're not fully out of that. But that really did not help U.S. growth at that time, you know, when we were expecting, you know, a huge boom from the tax cuts and that sort of thing. And again, I mean, I think it's really important. You know, sovereign borders are really important to the kind of world order here and you know as a country we've spent a lot of time over the last hundred years picking and choosing the ones that we think are important to our national interests and i suspect that there's going to be a much more united front um, in this situation in ukraine especially if there is um, a, a more dramatic loss of life that's a but B, you know, the Chinese, like you said, they're watching very closely. Will we find ourselves in a situation where we're fighting a sort of economic battle on two fronts? And what do you think that means for the global economy? Well, that's the nightmare. If, if China were to accelerate its timetable on Taiwan, and they've been very clear that this is only a matter of time, it's, it's when and not if, um, then I don't think either uh, international defense or global markets can, can handle that double whammy. Um, the, the impact on growth from an, uh, an oil price shock, et cetera, the supply chain disruptions would be massive. Um, you're right to point out the arguments over territorial boundaries. If, if people haven't watched the um, Kenyan ambassador to the UN speech the other day, I will put it on my Twitter. I'm at, at Tina Fordham One. Um, and he talks about exactly why this is such a risk. Nobody likes their borders. They should be bigger, they should be smaller, there should be more of their countrymen from whenever we all live in multi-ethnic republics, uh, unless, unless we, um, how do you say, uh, got rid of the indigenous people. So this is hugely problematic. We haven't had wars over territory since World War II, um, and it's hard to see where it ends. And so that's why if there is a reversal in this risk, it'll it'll come because Putin has overreached uh, and because Russian people and Russian soldiers don't cooperate. Um, but if you are an autocrat or a, 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 an opportunist, this is a very good moment to test the resolve of the United States and our allies in the security sphere. 
Tina, I want to thank you for joining us today. It was fascinating. We could do this for the next 45 minutes without question. But we're on a clock. So follow Tina Fordham at Tina Fordham 1, which means there must be an at Tina Fordham out there. I don't know. For more of her geopolitical analysis. Thanks so much, Tina. We'll absolutely have you back. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. So, Dan, before we get out of here, and we are up against it in terms of the clock, don't think we forgot about Butters, people. We never forget about Butters. We know which side our bread, effectively, is buttered on. So this one for the road speaks about price-to-earnings ratios and how things are starting to come into some semblance of normalcy, Dan Nathan. Yeah, so, you know, we love Butters. He's got his earnings insight from Facts that drops every Friday morning. So sign up for it at the Facts site uh, market blog there, and that'll hit your inbox. I've been listening to it or getting it for years. And, you know, for me, what I find is just what, you know, week to week kind of seeing we have saw a lot of earnings insights over the last six months that we're talking about how much um, the PEs and the S&P 500 um, we're above, right, those five and 10 year averages. So all of a sudden, guy, you know, a little bit of a sell off in the market and we're seeing those PEs come down a little bit. But that also means that the E is coming down. And I think that it's important to keep an eye on that. I'd say that's on a macro level here. And let's see if that were to shift back. But, you know, one of the things that you and I talk on a micro level is like, look at a stock like PayPal. OK, this stock was trading above three hundred dollars last summer. OK, and at the time, I think earnings expectations for the stock were at least double digits for 2022. Well, right now, those expectations are flat year over year from 2021. And then you say to yourself, OK, well, this stock's P.E.'s come in, the prices come in, the earnings have come in, and now it's trading at a much more reasonable sort of level next year, 2022. Earnings are expected to rise by 20% on a 20% sales increase. If that is true, let's say earnings came down too hard for the current year, and then the 2023 is, is achievable, well, all of a sudden, you have a stock that's traded at a premium multiple for years and years, trading below a market mm -hmm. multiple. And that's how we like to, I like to use these inputs like that. Let's think about it on a macro sense. Let's look at some of the names that we're really interested in and have they become mispriced. Because this stock at its lows this morning, Guy, was down 70% from July. That's exactly right. You know, valuation for a long time was a concern for me, as that pointed out. Well, that's becoming less of a concern, not to suggest it can't go lower or the E and the PE can't go lower, but at least that's one less thing, theoretically, we need to worry about. Anyway, folks, that's today's market call. Thanks again for our sponsors. There are three, FactSet, SoFi, and, of course, Open Exchange. Be sure to tune in again on Monday, 1 p.m., 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and check out our podcast, on the tape that drops, I just like saying that, on Friday. I'll say this, wherever you get your podcasts from, your favorite podcast store. <laughs> Mine is the Apple Store. There's one down the block. I'm going right now. See you later, Dan. See you, bud.